Good afternoon. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you my friend and colleague, our Franklin S. Hickman lecturer, Dr. Norman Wurzba. Dr. Wurzba offers a voice of realism and hope to the ecological crises that face our times, a voice recognized both inside and outside the church. His work and research take him into public spaces where he engages in generous conversations about environmental philosophy and ethics, food studies, and sustainable agriculture. He embodies his work in a thoughtful, compassionate life. A devoted husband and father of four, when he's not writing or teaching, you can find him playing guitar, baking, making things with wood, and even trying to grow some food. Dr. Wurzba is a theologian who shows that the Christian faith is a lot more interesting and compelling than people might think. And it is relevant in a pivotal moment in our history. For Christian faith, as Dr. Wurzba teaches it, offers us a redemptive, humane, and life-sustaining world. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wurzba. So thank you, Rhonda. I asked her to make stuff up, so now you have to see if what she said is true. So good afternoon. It's a good afternoon, right? I was outside, and I almost didn't come in, so if some of you feel a strong urge to do that, you, you have my permission. So it's a bit odd for me to talk to you about the good of theology because you're all theologians, right? You're all convinced that theology is a good, so what could I possibly say? I've been listening to people talking in the course of this two-day event, and I've learned some really good things from people who are doing fabulous things in churches, doing them in university context, social settings. So I don't know if I've got a whole lot to say, but in my view, when I travel around the country and I meet with pastors, I discover that a lot of them aren't reading theology. And I say, well, why not? And... Sometimes they'll say, well, have you seen some of the books? I thought about bringing some to the stage as demonstrations because sometimes you read what these theologians have written and you say, seriously, this is the best that we can do? And we think that most people don't talk this way. Or the way of speaking is extraordinarily difficult to understand. And so theology, rather than being a discipline that invites people in to explore what I think are some of the most powerful, meaning, urgent, necessary questions, sometimes theologians write in such a way as to prevent understanding. That's a problem. But then I also think that sometimes we are so used to the theological formulas that we had learned in our churches or that we've maybe learned at a divinity school. And we're tired of the formulas. And the people that we talk to, they hear some of our big words or phrases like righteousness. Do we really know what that is? Or the language of atonement? Or the blood of the Lamb? You know, these are words, they can mean something, but for a lot of people, they don't. And for people on the outside, they clearly are confused. 
why anybody speaks this way. And people on the inside, they're not always sure why they're still using those words. Because they stopped meaning much a long time ago, or they discover that these terms don't quite capture the ambiguity of their life. And so I think that as theologians, it's just a good idea every once in a while to ask the question, what's theology good for? Right? What are we trying to do? And does it have a value, whatever it is that we're trying to do? Now, I believe that there is a good in theology, and it's not just because I'm a professor of theology. I want to believe that when we do theology, wherever we are is better because of what we've done. And I don't take that for granted for a minute, because when I look around, I see that theology is doing a lot of bad in fact, when I talk to people, and I love to be with people who are not in the church, the number one reason they're not in the church is because it's the church. It's things like churches being hotbeds for hatred, division, animosity, pettiness. I mean, there are churches doing wonderful things, right? But they tend not to get the good press or the bad press, depending on how you look at it. And so a lot of people think the greatest obstacle to church is the church itself and presumably what's going on behind doors. And I think that's a real shame because I do believe that theology is what people really want to do. But they don't know how to do it. They don't see the church as necessarily being the place to go to figure out how to do it. And I'm speaking very generally here because this morning we heard from some pastors who are clearly doing some fabulous things. So I don't want to say that all pastors are in this camp, but enough are so that people are concerned. Okay, we are living in a world of wounds. Not just the people are suffering, the communities and the neighborhoods, but the world itself. And we're left to wonder... What's the role of theology in any of this? Rhonda said, I teach in areas of environmental concern, and I still regularly encounter Christians who say, why in the world would we care about that? And I think of that as a theological catastrophe, but obviously they do not. So we're operating with different conceptions of what theology is supposed to be about. I really appreciated yesterday in the panel among our university people how in their work they think what they are doing is theological and the way they are doing their work is theological because they're asking certain kinds of questions like, why am I here? What should I do? And how do I go about doing it? And I think those are fabulous questions, but I think we shortchange what theology can be if we think it's primarily about giving us or exclusively giving us something like an ethics by which to live. I think it does that, but it goes much, much richer and deeper than that. And one way to see that is to back up those questions, why am I here, what should I do, with primary questions that come before that, namely, 
Where are we? Who are we with? Because it's not clear to me that we understand either of those questions. We don't know how to think about our world. Where are we? Because when I look at popular culture, I see lots of people who have assumed that this world is coming to an end. You can't walk into a movie theater anymore without seeing films that are about the end of the world. Catastrophe has hit, folks. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to make it. Or we find that the fiction that so many of us are reading are not utopias, they're dystopias. And the question to me is, what's the assumption of movie producers and writers and the many people who go to view and read them such that we are consumed by a kind of apocalyptic imagination? And then when I see the success of a book series like Left Behind, do we really believe this world is one damnable lump that needs to be destroyed? Because if that's the assumption we work with, then the question, why are we here, does it really matter? Because the here has disappeared in the why are we here. Or ask the question, too, who are we with? What are people? What are people for? And we see in our culture that this is a very live question. We don't exactly know who people are. What is a person? How do we treat persons? These are questions that we are seeing, not just along gendered and racial, racial lines, but just very basically in how do we treat each other? And I've been following some of this political debate as much as I can stomach it, and the question of what is a human being is front and center in our political cycle this time around, I believe. And the way we are treating each other, not just the people who are running for office, but the citizens who are in these different polarized camps, indicates very little ability to think that people are worthy of our cherishing. So the questions are not simply ethical that theological people are asking. The questions are deeply ontological. What kind of a world is it that we are in? Who are the people that we are with? So that we can then start to ask the questions, why are we here? Because if we don't believe that we're in a world that's consigned to flame and oblivion, that's going to change what we think we should do. If we think people are for cherishing... That's going to change how we think what we should do. So when I talk today about the good of theology, I obviously am not going to give you the theological way to think. You know that what theology is has been done in all sorts of ways throughout the history of Christianity. And I have no desire to reduce it to just one way of doing theology, right? There are modes of theology that are primarily exposition of Scripture. There are modes of theology that are finally and primarily about how we bring coherence to our doctrinal teaching. There are forms of theological work that really focus on contextual analysis. right? And those are all valuable forms of work. 
But I want, I want to give you a slightly different way of thinking about theology today, which I hope will be helpful to you, and you can tell me at the end if you thought so. And in good Duke fashion, I propose that the way we start this conversation is we go to Scripture. Right? We do that around here. So I want us to start with 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. See, everything is new. This is an astounding passage, people. Because what Paul is communicating in this passage is, first of all, that Jesus is not simply here to give us a few new ideas. Jesus is not simply a moral teacher who, by giving us these teachings, sets up this kind of school that we can now become adherents to where we pass on the teachings. Paul is communicating that with the presence of Jesus in the world, everything has changed. Not just our ideas, not just our heads, but who we are as people, but even more fundamentally, the very structure of the world and its life. Nothing can be seen in the old sorts of ways any longer. Because what Jesus does is he puts in place a wholly new way of ordering life and ordering reality. And you might say, but isn't the world simply what it is? What could it possibly mean for us to think that with Christ everything becomes new, or that for us to experience some of this newness, we have to be in Christ, right? That we have to participate in His way of being in the world. Well, let me just start by giving you one way to start to think about this. What kind of a world are we in? I asked this question earlier. I think for a lot of people, the answer is obvious. It's just what it is. It's what you see, right? But what we forget when we answer like that, and maybe we use a word like nature, right? Nature is a good way to describe everything that's out there. What we forget is that the world is always an interpretive world. And so not surprisingly, if you do a little bit of work trying to figure out what does a word like nature mean, you discover that it means a whole bunch of things. Right? In ancient thought, it meant the principle at work within things, enabling them to be the things that they are. So it's in the nature right, of, a, of a seed to grow into the plant that it is. Or it's in the nature of a human being to exercise rationality. Or something like that. Or we get the romantic writers in the 19th century who say, no, 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 nature is wilderness. And that we should go to this wilderness because that's the place of our healing. Because, you know, civilizations, they really degrade human beings. And so we need to get away from cities and all the chaos that can happen there so we can get outdoors into wilderness, the lakes districts, for instance. And when we're there, we'll get the healing we need. We'll find that the stress that has caused us to go crazy is relieved. Or I think the more predominant way to think about nature is as a stockpile of natural resources. The world is basically 
a huge warehouse of commodities. And what we are charged to do is to figure out how we can most efficiently allocate or use or profit by these resources. So I teach in the Nicholas School too. And you can do a whole degree in natural resource management. Is that how we should describe the world? As the place of commodities? Because the first thing to recognize is that the word nature doesn't show up in the Bible. It's not a Hebrew word. For the scripture, the way to talk about the world is to say that it's creation. It's the work of God's hands. And so from the beginning, we should be puzzled by some of the ways that we narrate the world in terms of this category called nature because what if the world isn't nature to begin with? What if the world is instead God's creation? Which is to say that rather than being a warehouse or a massive store of commodities, what if we were to say instead that the world is the place of gift? Because none of it had to be. And the fact that it exists at all is because God desires and loves it to be. And so everything that is is God's gift to us. Does our seeing, perceiving the world as a gift, change the way we think about everything? I think absolutely. Because now we don't come to the world with this posture, which has been our posture for centuries now. How can we best get and use up what's there? Because now the posture is this, like when you come to the Eucharist. Because the most important thing to do with the gift is to learn how to receive it. And in receiving it, pass it on to somebody else to share with them so that together you can lift up your hands like this back to the Lord in gratitude and blessing for the gifts that are there. Would we have a different economy if we believe that the world is the place of gifts rather than commodities? I think absolutely. But we haven't begun to think about what that would mean. And would it not be a gift to our world if we could begin that conversation with our colleagues, wherever they are? Because, you see, I believe people would be fascinated to explore together what kind of world are we in? Because people are sensing that the world we are in now, as it's been narrated to us, is on a dead-end course. <coughs> and the question of whether or not we'll have any hope for this world is a really pressing one. I believe that we go to Jesus as the one who shows us what this newness is. Right? Remember, to be in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. So what we need to do, I think, is we need to go to Jesus and try to figure out, well, what's Jesus doing? How is attending to the life of Jesus, his way of being in the world, how does it change the very structure of reality and therefore also the way we think about our place within it? There are lots of places that we could go to, but I'm going to suggest that we go to the story of the Gerasene demoniac. 
It's in Mark and in Luke. There's another version in Matthew. You know the story. Jesus approaches, and this man comes out, and he's possessed by demons, legion of demons, so many. And he looks awful. We learn that this man is violent, he's out of control, and the people are clearly worried for themselves and perhaps also for him because what they do is they try to tie him up. They put him in chains because if they tie him up, maybe he won't be able to hurt himself or anybody else. And I think it's significant that the place that Jesus finds this man is a cemetery, graveyard. Because even though he's alive, it's a living death. I think we live in a world where a lot of people think that's exactly where we are. Think about our culture's fascination with zombies. Why are we so fascinated with zombies? It's not just because Hollywood cinema can make it look really cool. I think it's tapping into a sensibility in which people are asking, yeah, we're walking around, but to what extent are we really alive? Are our days one long journey toward death? As you might remember in the story, Jesus orders the demons to leave this man. And the demons do. They beg. Don't just take us out. And so Jesus puts them in a herd of swine that then rush over a cliff and perish in the sea. The man is restored to his rightful mind. He calms down. And the man is clearly excited. He wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't stay with me. You go back. You go back to your home. And you tell them what the Lord has done. I don't claim to understand everything about this story. Because, to be honest, the whole idea of exercising demons is just a little bit freaky. And what's with the swine? We're told that the herd of swine might have been 2,000. I've been around pigs, and having 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of pigs. And if you're thinking agriculture in first century Palestine, to have 2,000 pigs is an enormous herd of pigs, which makes me wonder, does Jesus allow these demons to go into the pigs because Jesus is also making a critique, a critique of the agriculture that's starting to happen in ancient Galilee? form of agriculture which is impoverishing all the peasants, the folks that Jesus is with. That's conversation for another day. <laughs> agriculture is everywhere in the Bible, people. But don't get me started. Now what's happened in this story? Because we've learned after this miraculous event that the people are not happy. You would think that they would say, this is amazing. He's healed this 
person who has been a danger to himself and to us, we should all rejoice, hug Jesus, and say, please stay with us. But they don't say that at all. They ask him to leave. And the question is, why? And I think one of the reasons might be it's because Jesus is showing them that the way they have thought about reality is entirely wrong. Because what we do with reality is we tie it up. We tie it up so that we can be comfortable in this world. And Jesus says, there can be no life that is first tied up. And so Jesus presupposes a world in which there is no bondage of any kind. And instead of approaching this man through the lens of fear, Jesus approaches the man through the lens of compassion, takes away the bondage so that he can live into the fullness of life that God wants for this man from the beginning. You see, this is what Jesus does all the time. When you read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus has what we might call double vision. Jesus sees what is there, okay? So he sees the pain. He sees the agony that people are living in. He knows the ambiguity of life, the tension that's built into life, the suffering that's going on. But unlike us, he also sees that locked within that pain and suffering and agony and ambiguity is God's love at work. And what God sees is that if this love could be liberated, the wholeness of life could be restored. You could say that Jesus' vision is a Sabbath way of seeing Because like God on the first Shabbat, Jesus looks out onto the whole world and sees the love of God made material. And it's beautiful and it's good. But what's happened is that in our world, so much of it is in bondage. As Paul says in Romans 8, the whole of creation is groaning. It has been subjected to futility, not of its own. And so what what God most desires is that people would be reconciled with God so that in their reconciliation, the creatures could all be liberated. Why reconciliation? Why does our participating in the life of Jesus, our being in Jesus, presuppose something like reconciliation with God? Because when we're reconciled with God, we discover the love of God that set the world in motion and daily sustains it in its life. And to know this love is to participate in this love. Because... Knowledge, as you know, within a scriptural context, is always participatory knowledge. It's never knowledge about. It's knowledge in. It presupposes this kind of effective intimacy, this practical sharing in the way of being 
that God is. So insofar as we are in Christ, we are the ones who have opened ourselves to the love of God at work in the world all the time. The love of God that is trying to find its expression in you and me. So that like Jesus, when we see somebody who is sick, we don't just see the sickness. We see the child of God that they are. And we see specifically what this child could be if it were no longer under the bondage of sickness. When we see people who are hungry, we discover that hunger is the impediment to that person, that creature, living into the fullness of its life. And so we engage in the work of feeding. Jesus, upon seeing a child who has died, sees death as the impediment to the full realization of that child's life, and so returns that child back to its life. When we use whatever condition, whether it's a medical or a mental or whatever condition, to put people on the margins, Jesus removes the alienation and the loneliness by befriending the people and bringing them back into life of community. Jesus is constantly showing us in the Gospels how our way of seeing, perceiving, engaging others is far too much through the lenses of fear, anxiety, insecurity, competition, arrogance. That's my experience. And what Jesus is saying is, to be in me is to no longer see reality from this point of view at all. Because now participating in my way of being in the world, you discover my way of love. And to now be in the flow of this way of love is to be a new creature. A creature who now sees everything in this entirely new way. The very structure of reality has changed. What should we call this? Well, we can call it a new creation imagination. Or maybe we can call it a transfiguration imagination. And this may be one of the most important things that we can do as theologians. Is we can help people see the good, the beauty, the love of God everywhere in the world. And I mean everywhere. Because everything that is, all creatures, are God's love made variously tactile, visible, auditory, fragrant, and delectable. That's what the world is. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in Scripture we find from the beginning God's love and devotion for every creature. Or that God's covenant is never simply between God and people, but between God and people and the land. Or that when they enter into the promised land, God says, my eyes are constantly on the land from the beginning of the year until its end. Or that in the Christ hymn, they will say that all things are created by Christ, for Christ, through Christ. That in Christ, all things hold together 
so that all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled with God. The scope of God's love extends to everything, which means that our theological imaginations must extend to everything. How's that sound? If theology is helping each one of us move into this new creation imagination, or something like a transfiguration imagination, we may need to start to think about church a little differently. We may need to start thinking about church as a school or a classroom where we learn how to move into God's ways of love with the world. That our churches ought to be those primary apprenticeship programs call it discipleship, where we learn about the difficulty of love. Every once in a while, I can pull it off. But love is hard. And what theology does is it helps us understand how hard it is. And then perhaps as a body that the church is supposed to be, where we are members in the life and the sharing of each other, we can help each other understand the difficulty, but also the potential and the possibility for what love can look like wherever we are. Sometimes I think we take too much time thinking about, have we got all the teachings right? Teachings are important, right? I certainly believe that. But what the teaching is for, right? What biblical studies for, what historical studies for, what the the various ministries, what they're all for is fundamentally to inspire us and then instruct us in the ways of love. Because if we do not know love intimately by practicing it, we're not going to be able to see the world as new creation. We're only ever going to be able to see the world through our own fear or through our own insecurity, or through our own ambition. And the truth is that this whole way of perceiving and relating to the world is destroying it. So let's now do a little bit of theology. I like to think about really fundamental things in our lives because we often don't pay much attention to them. So as you might guess, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about food. Let's start with the question, what is food? Should be an obvious question, right? Food is fuel. And we get that fuel as conveniently as we can, as cheaply as we can, as copiously as we can, because when we have the fuel, we can get about the business of living the life we want to live. Seems pretty simple, right? But you notice, of course, that this way of describing food is basically to say it's a commodity. And of course, that's exactly what our food system wants us to believe. It's all about commodities. And what we want to do in the food sector is we want to come up with commodities that you know, are sexy, 
or that will communicate a certain kind of brand or style or that will give you all these particular health benefits or whatever. Do you understand how this way of thinking about food as a commodity is entirely new in the history of the world? Or do you realize that this way of thinking about food is simply a commodity has given us the most unhealthy diet the world has ever seen? There's a fundamental theological principle that I subscribe to, and it is that God is not mocked. We fool ourselves if we think we can take the gifts of God, transform them into commodities, and not hurt the world and ourselves at the same time. We will do tremendous damage when we misperceive and mistake the world. We need, I think, to have a very different imagination around food. And it doesn't mean that I want you all to become foodies. Maybe some of you can take pictures and post them, but you don't have to do that. We have to have a different food imagination, one that participates in the life of Christ so that through the love that we are now in, we are again enabled to see the world as a gift of God and that food is God's way of communicating uh, to us daily one sentiment. I love you and I want you to thrive. Those of you who cook food, you know that when you make a meal for somebody, you're communicating to them how much you love them. Or not. Because you may just throw them something that you picked up somewhere and said, you know, you really aren't worth the time. Or you might have said, no, I, I know that this person really loves this dish and so I want to make it to them, make it for them as an expression of how much I value them because I know that this, di this dish will make them glad and I know that, that this dish will help them live a life that's better than before they came to the table. You know this is a cook. Jesus wants us to understand that God is the primordial cook. Because as you read the creation stories, and there's multiple creation stories in the Bible, God says very clearly, I've given you this world for food. And God gets very angry when there are hungry people, when there are creatures who are not able to eat. Because when there are creatures who cannot eat, it's an affront to the love and the goodness of God. And so it's not just about people getting what they need, but if you think about the Sabbath code, there's clear descriptions, both in Scripture but also in rabbinic traditions that develop these teachings to say that what God really wants is that all the creatures be fed and well cared. So how are we supposed to think about food then? If we say it's God's way of saying, I love you, this is kind of bizarre, right? But if we believe that food is God's love made nutritious or God's love made delectable, it changes everything. 
Because now again, food is not going to be measured in terms of its efficiency or its profitability to some, or its convenience. Because receiving love, as you know, is never convenient. And so we have to figure out how do we make ourselves worthy of not just the receiving of this love, but then agents of the extension of that love to others. Because if we could simply get our eating right, and by right I mean an eating that is thoroughly saturated by the love of God, we would be talking about heaven. Because if you think about the use of terms like the kingdom of God, or the use of the term heaven in scripture, what do we mean by these realities? Well, we're talking about life. We're talking about a world in which everything that moves now moves only by the power of love. No longer by the power of fear. No longer by the power of jealousy or ambition or anxiety. Because fear, ambition, anxiety, these are all the powers, principalities maybe, that lead us into ways of relating, ways of experiencing the world such that there's going to be violence. There's going to be all kinds of needless suffering. But if we begin to see everything through this lens this way of being called God's love, suddenly everything looks different. Everything has become new if we use Paul's language. So, if food is God's love made delectable and nutritious, how should we think about chickens? Do you think about chickens very much? You should, even if you're not a farmer. You remember that Jesus compares himself once to a mother hen who longs to gather the chicks under her wings. What would that be like? If the image of the hen is good enough for God, I think we should think about chickens. And when we do think about chickens in our society, the story's not so good. Because we're not viewing chickens through the lens of love. We're viewing chickens through the lens of profitability, efficiency. And so we're doing terrible, brutalizing things to chickens, all so that we can have chicken conveniently and cheaply. We're doing terrible things to the farmers who raise these chickens because we want our chicken meat to be cheap. And it's so degrading to these chickens. And you're saying, okay, get off the chicken story, will you? It's the way we have to do things, right? I don't think so. My grandfather, he raised chickens. And he believed that chickens were gifts from God. They're meant to be cherished and eaten. 
So on our farm growing up, what he would do every day from spring till fall is after lunch, he would get a bucket aside and he'd go out and mow down some grass that was about six inches tall. He'd put it in the bucket, walk to the chicken coop. And when he did, the chickens, they came running. They're like this. And the chickens are smiling. Because what my grandfather then does is he takes the grass, he throws it in the air, and the chickens are just jumping up and down, gobbling up the grass. And the question is, why in the world would he do that? It doesn't make any economic sense to do that. Because, first of all, he's a really busy man. There's a lot of work to do on a farm all the time. And these chickens, they're free range. They can get any grass they want. So why does he do this? It's because he has a new creation imagination. When he sees chicken, he sees the love of God at work. And because chickens are one manifestation of God's love at work, he believes that chicken happiness matters. And if this chicken is going to be offered to us as food, he will first offer himself to the chickens, too. And so he had this ritual in which he would give this offering of himself to the chickens every day. So leaving chickens behind, what about farm workers? How should we think about farm workers if we have a new creation imagination? Maybe you don't know, but you should. Without agricultural workers, many of them migrant, many of them undocumented, you wouldn't eat. Because we are in the middle of a huge experiment in this world. It's called urbanization. For the first time, we have more people living in cities than have lived on the land. What's that going to do to us when we think about agricultural work? Well, we've already seen what it's been doing in this country because basically we despise agricultural work. We're doing everything we can to have to do none of it. And so whatever has to be done, we want done by machines or people who don't matter. And so not surprisingly, the agricultural workers who make our food possible, live in conditions that are unsafe, dangerous, or in some cases, one step removed from slavery. They do some of the most dangerous work in the world, also that we can have cheap strawberries. What would it mean to think about agricultural workers through the lens of new creation? How do we see the love of God at work in them? What would we have to do to receive them as God's love made human flesh? Would we start by honoring these workers for the work that they do? Because it does no good to just blame the overseers or the food companies, because it comes down to us. Typical Americans today are spending less on food than in the history of the whole world. And we still want our food to be cheaper. Could we pay more for our food? Could we work with 
the land to grow food? When I travel around the country, one of the most exciting things I'm seeing is congregations telling me about how they've started food ministries and it's transforming their congregation. Jesus was in the food preparation business. He liked to feed people. And if he wasn't feeding people, he liked eating with people, even the folks you're not supposed to eat with. Because in the Gospel of Luke, one commentator said Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal, or going to a meal throughout the whole Gospel. Eating makes the world go round. And then lastly, what would a new creation imagination look like if we're talking about the people sitting at our tables? Who's there? This is hard. We've got the power lunch. And what do we mean by a power lunch? Well, we invite people to eat with so that we can use those people to some advantage to ourselves, right? I want to do that. Why would I want to invite somebody to the table that's not going to do me any favors? Might not even make me laugh or might not say thank you. These are hard things to do. But there's no question that from the point of view of Scripture, one of the clearest signs that you are working and walking and seeing, perceiving in the ways of God's love is that you have become a hospitable person. That you welcome to the table the people that are there so that their being there now improves their lives, not necessarily your own. Do you remember the story of Abram sitting at his tent and seeing the visitors come? Rublev used Abram's hospitality to the strangers for his great icon, the Trinity, which is entirely fitting because the life of God is the life of hospitality. John of Damascus, one of the great theologians in the early church, said that you could understand the whole work of God's creation as one lavish demonstration of hospitality. Because what God does in creating the world is first of all, God makes room for what is not God to be. And then God welcomes this new life into God's own life. So to nurture it there, to empower it there, so that this creature can now live the life that God uniquely wants for it. Sometimes I think we work on the assumption that for God to be great, we must be small. This is a mistake because creatures are not in competitive relationship with their creator. God desires from the beginning for creatures to thrive and to flourish, which is why God is a hospitable God who welcomes in and feeds and empowers so that you can then go on your way into the life of your freedom, empowered now by love to join God's own love in the world. Right? This is an astounding vision of what reality is like. 
Do we think of our world through the lens of hospitality? Because to do so is to participate in God's own ways of being in the world. Early church theologians said we should think about salvation as theosis, right? Our divinization. Athanasius says God became human so that humans can become and share in the work of God, the life of God. Not by nature, but by participation. This is what I think theology is for. The good of theology is that it helps us see the good, the love, the beauty that is in the world. That is the foundation of the world. That is what moves the world. And then theology gives us what we need, the kinds of training, the kinds of apprenticeships, so that we can learn to participate in that love. And when we do this kind of participatory loving with God in the world, the good that has always been there can thrive and flourish. If you ask me, I think that's good work. So now let's have some time for conversation. I'm Joseph uh, from Bethel Center Charges Snow Camp. Uh, I was really impressed by the way you uh, talked about your father, right? And that, was, it, was, was it grandfather? Yes, father? my grandfather, yeah. Uh, your grandfather. So uh, it sounded to me like, you know, he, when he was feeding the chicken, he might have not known that he was doing any kind of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, the imagine, new creation imagination right. himself, right? So without knowing and realizing that, you know, he was doing imagine, uh, new creation imagination, he was doing it. And then now you reflect on his action and his attitude, and now uh, we kind of see that this is theology. You know, we uh, kind of lens we want to look at uh, what he was actually doing it. Mm -hmm. So my question can be, well, yes, theology is important, and then we uh, use theology for this and that purpose. But yet, seems like there are people who are actually living it out without knowing it, and while actually there are people who are trying to identify and uh, explain it, while actually we don't have power to live it out. So uh, how can we actually, you know, I, I really like the scripture you, you quoted from Second uh, Corinthians, so actually, what could be the way maybe we can not just talk about it, but even leave it out like your granddaddy? Yeah, so a couple of things. My grandfather believed that scripture is fundamental, and so unlike me, had major portions of it memorized. So when I would work with him, it was a kind of sermon much of the time because as he was working, he would recite psalms or he would sing hymns. And this shaped his imagination. So you're right in the sense that he wouldn't call what he was doing transfiguration imagination or new creation imagination. But he understood simply because he breathed scripture that the world he lives in is a gift from God. 
And the most important thing he needs to learn to do is to how, how to receive that gift. I think this is a, a theme that you see throughout Scripture. It's constantly repositioning people so that we don't take anything in this world for granted. That we don't presume upon the world, right? If we had more time, we could talk about how sacrifice is an essential disposition for the life of faith. Because if we are going to receive the offerings of the world, and we need to remember that these are not simple or easy offerings that we have to receive because for us to eat, others have to die. We have to figure out how difficult it is to offer ourselves in return. I believe my grandfather understood this without having to read theology. So I think one of the things that the church can do, because I agree it's not essential that people go make a study of Karl Barth or even Athanasius, but I do think it would be important for churches to be the kinds of places where people are quite intentional and articulate about what it is they are trying to do by learning to love each other. And be quite open about the difficulty of doing exactly that. I don't think we do each other favors when we say we're here to love everybody and then not acknowledge how hard that is. Because it's really hard, at least for me it is. And so if we're going to be honest about what we're trying to do and then perhaps as we are trying to do it together, we have some successes. I think people will see this and they'll say, I need to figure out how to do some of that too. Sometimes I believe that Christians really think God wants us to be unhappy. I don't think so. God wants us to know joy and there is no joy apart from sharing in the love of each other. That is the pinnacle of joy. Another question. When you were talking about the theology of food and uh, God's love shown through food, I was thinking about how we feed people in church, uh, especially uh, the homeless, and what kind of food we give them. And um, yeah, because oftentimes people brag about how cheaply we can feed the homeless instead of how can we give them something that is nutritious and delicious and show them that we love them. And also thought about um, how prisoners are often fed terrible food as a form of punishment. That's and great school kids. Don't forget public school kids. And school kids, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think... The, the reason food, I mean, there's many reasons I think food is a fabulous optic by which to rethink fundamental theological categories is the way we think about food, the way we handle food, the way we produce food, we are communicating to ourselves and to everybody else what we think about life. Right? We think life should be cheap, it should be convenient. That's fundamental. Because we don't want to do what God said we should do, right? Go to Genesis chapter 2, where we get this story of God the gardener, who then produces human beings, plants, animals, all out of the ground. And God's the gardener, 
making things happen by gardening, and then God says, now you go do that too. And this is not a punishment, people. The fall has not yet happened, however you understand the fall. God is inviting people into the work of gardening because that's the way we understand God's relating to us. We could not live without God's constant attention, patience, watering, nurturing, protecting, weeding. And I've got a garden. I've got people in this room who've seen my garden, and they say, you're pretty pathetic. <laughs> and the reason is gardening is hard. I'm a prairie boy from Western Canada, and July and August are a write-off for me. Because I sweat just to go get one cherry tomato. It's too hot. Now imagine if God said, okay, July and August, I'm taking a break. Too hot. See, God is constantly present in the mode of the gardener or the good shepherd or the vine dresser. I mean, there's so many agricultural, horticultural images that are circulating throughout Scripture. This is a fundamental way that we come to understand something about how precious, how vulnerable, how difficult life is. And our desire to have life cheaply and conveniently as manifested most clearly through our food system indicates that we have walked away entirely from this vision that we get in Genesis 2, which is a foundational vision for the whole of Scripture. So does that mean everybody has to grow all their own food? Well, of course not, because if that was the requirement, we'd all starve to death. Because growing your own food is really hard. But I do believe it's important for us to try to grow some of our own food, or at least be in close association with those who do, so that we can understand something about life's costly nature. Life is not cheap, it's not easy. And for life to thrive, we have to be constantly attentive to what's going on. And that means, okay, and this is something that I learned in spades growing up amongst farming people. When they wake up, what's in their head is not what they want, but what their farm needs. So what would it be like for us to grow up with daily desires shaped around expectations of the needs of the creatures that we are with. What we get in the New Testament is just an ecclesial version of exactly the same thing. To be in the body of Christ is to wake up in the morning not thinking about what the body can do for you, but about what you can do for the members that are with you. Because when you devote your life to the membership, the whole body, which includes you, can now thrive. But what I would say is the membership of the body of Christ never stops with people. It includes the whole creation. And there are moments in the history of the church where they understood that. Do we have time for another question? One more question? talking a lot about food and us being a people who are supposedly centered around a table, namely the Eucharistic table. Can you talk a little bit about how 
this new creation imagination where it comes to food might challenge us or move us towards reconceiving, re-centralizing, et cetera, our practice when it comes to the Eucharist. You're not a Duke graduate, are you? <laughs> I am. Ah, I knew it. This is Duke way of thinking, right? It's all the Eucharist. Well, it is all the Eucharist, actually. Uh, I, I'll suggest this way. Why don't we start with John chapter 6 as a way to open up the question. Where we get this astounding story in which, first of all, Jesus feeds the multitude. Because God cares that people eat, right? And in the eating, everybody's happy. They're on a grassy plain, well, little hillside, right? There's a lot of really great imagery going on. So, Jesus then says to these people... Uh, you're mistaken about who I am because the people rushed upon him, John says, and wanted to make him king. You know why? Because these are people who live on fairly intimate terms with hunger. And who wouldn't want to have a king who is grocery store manager on demand? Can provide food just like that. But Jesus says, that's not who I am, people. And he says, I'm not even like Moses. Because you remember what Moses did in the desert, right? He called to God and God sent down manna, which means we don't know what it is, but boy, we're glad it's there. <laughs> and they got to eat. And Jesus says, that's not who I am. I'm the bread of life, which is a most bizarre way of speaking. And then Jesus gets even more repulsive because he says, you have to eat me. And it's not nibble, right? So it's not a little niblet. The Greek is tregain, which means to chomp and chew, right? So we're supposed to masticate on Jesus' flesh. Because, Jesus says, unless I am in you, you can't abide in me. And if you don't abide in me, you have no life. You might exist, but you don't have life. You know, you're just one step above that garrison demoniac whose life actually is a walking death. But you're doing a little better than that. And so Jesus says, you got to eat me. you got to drink my blood. Well, there's so much going on in this passage. But I think one way to start is to say, we need Jesus. We need to feast on Jesus. Because we need to be transformed from the most visceral level of our being, which is our gut. And unlike ordinary bread that dissolves, is digested by our consuming of it, Jesus is the bread who gets inside of us, transforms us from within, so that we can live the life that he now makes possible, which is his own life of feeding and healing and befriending and reconciling and exercising. And we consume his blood because the blood, as you remember, is the power of life. So we now operate in this new modality, which I've been describing as God's own way of love. And when we do that, we will be the kind of presence in the world that witnesses to God's love, but also extends God's love in the world. So what does that mean in terms of Eucharistic practice. Well, I think we start by talking about this with our congregations. What are we doing at this meal? Right? I grew up in a low church Baptist denomination where the Lord's Supper happened once a month and we were all very unhappy because we were told, you're supposed to remember, you killed Jesus and 
it made the service longer, so we had to wait for lunch. So we didn't talk about this. But what if we said that this meal really is about us experiencing newness of life, being fed so that we are now energized and inspired to live this new kind of life, and then made it a meal so that as we come together, we figure out how we can be that membership which looks out for each other, looks after each other, sees what's going on in the neighborhood in which we are this body so that we can be a source of nurture beyond our building, beyond our community, right? These are the things that I believe the Eucharist empowers us to do because eating together, especially eating done together with Christ called into the very heart of our reality, I think that's transformative eating. And we know this when we look at Acts because there we get told that these early Christians now, under the power of the Holy Spirit, what did they do? They worshipped together, they shared their things together, and they ate together often. And they were glad. And then as just a little aside, it says, and there wasn't a single one among them who had need. That's astounding. Whether or not it actually happened that way, we don't know. But at least the writer of Acts understood that if we eat with Jesus in us, the implications are totally revolutionary. Thank you.